Uh, well, as Milt said, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. I want to uh, welcome you. And as Milt said, we are starting off a new sermon series, uh, and I couldn't be more excited to jump into the book of Acts with you guys together. So what better way to start a sermon series than story time with Pastor Mike? All right, you guys ready for a story? Uh, so about 20 years ago, uh, I was given the opportunity to spend my college summers away from the blistering heat of Texas and work in the Rocky Mountains of Northern Colorado at a Christian guest ranch called Wind River Ranch. So I was the program director and families would come from all over the country to spend a week horseback riding up in the mountains and they would listen to a Christian speaker for the week. And so it was awesome. It was way better than the 150 degree concrete jungle of North Texas. Uh, but there my first year, a family came to visit. Mike and Bev, and they brought their three young girls. And Mike and I instantly connected, and we, we bonded in that week over deep conversations about life and faith and God. Uh, and so I was 20, and Mike must have been in his mid to late 30s, so in my mind, uh, he was in his twilight years, uh, kind of ma mapping out the back nine of life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, at the end of the week, he pulled me aside and said, hey, Mike, would you, would you pray for me? And he and Bev were, were about to make the, a big life change and wanted God to be leading them. So you see, Mike uh, had been working for his father-in-law who owned this successful home building company, and he was in line to be like the heir apparent of the company. But he and Bev felt that this wasn't what God had in line for them uh, and that he was going to step away from the company. So they wanted prayers because they wanted to be faithful to God, and they also wanted to protect that relationship in the process. So I said, of course, I'll pray for you. Um, but uh, then I asked, do you, do you know what God is calling you to? And Mike said, yeah, you know, I, I want to be where God wants me. I want to be a light for him in this world. So I believe he wants me to go and be a fifth grade public school teacher. So at 20, I didn't know much. But even then, I was like, what? You're stepping away from an amazing job. Nothing wrong with it. Great money, influence, vacations, big home and toys, and everything to go be a public school teacher. Now, no offense to public school teachers. Remember, this is 20-year-old Mike talking right now. Uh, and all because you want your life to be about following Jesus wherever he calls you. And he's like, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm scared, but I'm so excited to follow God and do this. And it was right then for me that something hit me like a ton of bricks. I was looking at a man with a family, with what the world would say is a setup for a great life, but he was gripped by something else, something bigger, a treasure more valuable to him than what this world offered. He had experienced some kind of personal revolution, a complete change in him, and he was living in a bigger story than I was at that moment. And I knew at that moment that I wanted what he had. So for the last 20 years or so, Mike has been one of my spiritual mentors, discipling me about what it means to live a life of treasuring Jesus above everything, a life revolutionized by Jesus, completely changed and upside down to everything this world has to say. So this Jesus that brought a revolution to Mike's life is the same Jesus that brought a revolution to the entire 
world. And it's the story that we're going to be opening up today. And will take us through the fall and through the spring. It's the story of the book of Acts. It's the beginning of the church. And it is the single greatest revolution that the world has ever known. No other movement in history has changed um, the, the world more than what happens in this book. It is a revolution that hundreds of millions have claimed changed them, saved them, brought them a, a purpose and a meaning to life that they couldn't find in themselves or this world. It's a revolution that giving rise to the greatest works of arts and advancement in culture that we've seen, bringing justice to the oppressed and education and health care to the masses. The church to this very day has impacted billions of people within every layer of society and has empowered even the least of these with a heavenly dignity and worth, all the while subverting and outlasting even the mightiest of empires that have tried to extinguish it. And surely we are not without dark things done in history in the name of the church, for sure. But however, the church and the movement sparked here in our story the, is the greatest revolution the world has ever known. And it starts in our passage. So let me ask you real quick. If you were in charge of starting a world-changing revolution, what would you think you need? Like the ingredients in your recipe for revolution. Let's think. It's going to be expensive. So we're going to need some donors with some really deep pockets. Uh, and we'll need some marketability, right? So let's go get some high-profile celebrities and politicians, cultural figures to be our spokespeople. And we'll need some aspirational goals, right? Uh, this revolution will bring about all your dreams coming true. Any Pedro fans from Napoleon Dynamite? Maybe. Yeah, man, fewer laughs with Pedro every year. Uh, <laughs> a full, this revolution will bring you a full and free and flourishing life. It'll take you from your, your poverty and your pain and transform your life into riches and comfort. So how in the world did the greatest revolution in history happen with the exact opposite elements? How is it that a movement populated by the poor and the marginalized and the powerless, following a leader that was executed in shame as a criminal, whose lives in ways often got worse for joining and believing. How is it that it exploded in power and joy and a momentum that nothing on earth could stop? Well, again, we actually find this recipe for revolution in the opening story here in the first 11 verses in Acts. Five things, five ingredients that when they come together, change everything, change history, change the world, change the life of a mid-30s home builder, and change everyone who believes. So let's take a look at the recipe for revolution, starting with the first ingredient, the proof of the story from Acts 1, verses 1 through 3, and I'll read. It says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking 
about the kingdom of God. So the book of Acts was written by Luke, the same one who wrote the gospel of Luke. So that's what he's referring to when he says there in the first book, that's the gospel book of Luke. But both the gospel of Luke and Acts are addressed to someone named Theophilus, who many scholars believe was a Roman leader who was undoubtedly interested in the life of Jesus and perhaps had the financial means to fund Luke's work. So who is Luke? Well, Luke was a follower of Jesus, but also a historian and a physician. Both the Gospel of Luke and Acts make it clear that Luke was a diligent and detailed pursuer of the truth. As a historian and physician, Luke was a man of facts, and his job was to investigate with intense scrutiny the story and claims of Jesus. And what does Luke conclude about Jesus? Verse 3, he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, we don't have time to dive into all the proofs and apologetics surrounding uh, the resurrection of Jesus, but just for today, let's just consider what has happened in history here. Jesus was publicly crucified. That's his suffering. And he was killed by experts in execution, the Romans. He was buried in a tomb, sealed and guarded. Three days later, that sealed, guarded tomb was empty. And a growing number of people started confessing that they had seen Jesus alive. What specifically happened? Well, Luke tells us that these weren't just a few passing visions, but that the living risen, resurrected Jesus was around for over a month, 40 days. And Paul would tell us that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people when Paul writes in Corinthians this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Go ask them, though some have fallen asleep. An empty tomb, no body found, of the most famous person to have ever lived. Hundreds of people over the course of weeks claimed to see him, hear him, eat with him, touch him, be with him, so much so that they were revolutionized, changed from frightened, cowardly, and defeated followers of a dead Jesus to those who face the ruling powers, embrace suffering, and even death as followers of a risen king. The revolution starts with the revelation that the story of Jesus is the story, and there is no other, and it is proven by his resurrection. You might have heard it said, as it often is, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's no need to consider anything he said. You can just ignore him. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then you have to submit 
to everything, he said. And here in the beginning of the revolution, we see Luke's catalytic kickstart. Jesus' resurrection proves the story, and it's about him. And for those that saw him, it changed everything. So the first ingredient for our recipe for revolution, the proof of the true story that we're all in. But that alone doesn't change the world. We need to add the next ingredient, the purpose of our lives within that story. Now, this part of the sermon, to be honest, might be boring to some of us because none of us probably have ever questioned what the purpose of our lives is. So this will be boring to you. Uh, Some of you don't sleep at night because you question the purpose of your lives. Some of us, you know, we've never been confused or wondered why we're here. No, all joking aside, we wrestle with that. But Jesus not only proves that the story that we're in is his, but he also says that we've got a very important purpose to play in it. But it's just not what we think it is. So we're going to see that as we go back to our uh, passage in verse 6. So it says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So imagine with me that you're one of the disciples with Jesus here, right? You've followed him for years. You've left everything for him. You've seen the oppression of Rome against you and your people. And you were super defeated when he died. Thought all was lost. And then the resurrected Jesus comes back. And your joy is not only restored, but it's like exponentially skyrocketed above where you could ever have imagined. So you look at Jesus and say, I guess it's time. It's time for us to take over. For the kingdom to come, like, let's, let's head up to the palace and rip out Caesar and the Roman rulers and let's take our place in power over our oppressors. It's time for that, Jesus, right? And why did they ask this? Because they still didn't understand the kingdom that Jesus came to bring and how it would come. And they didn't understand their purpose in it all. And I love how John Stott explains their confusion this way when he says this about that verse. He said, the verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and territorial kingdom. The noun Israel, that they were expecting a national kingdom. And the clause at this time, that they were expecting it to be established immediately. And in his reply, Jesus corrected their mistaken ideas about the kingdom's nature, extent, and arrival. They were expecting a different kind of kingdom than the one Jesus was bringing. They were still looking for a a military, geopolitical kingdom, and they wanted it now. And so they ask, is now the time? And Jesus lovingly, graciously says, don't worry about it. I've got something way more important for you to worry about. The very purpose of your lives right now. So what is that purpose of our lives? You see, our hearts all day long are told a story that we're meant to build our own kingdoms in our own power, for our own glory and names, live for ourselves on our own terms, 
the resurrection of Jesus proves the reality of another story. A greater kingdom, not ours, but his. But it's not a kingdom that is built the way others are. Through power, through submission of others, through force. It's a kingdom built by witnesses. Jesus tells them, you will be my witnesses. Wherever you are, whatever you do, wherever you go, that is your life's purpose now. So what is a witness, just in general? Well, it's someone who's seen something and then shares what they've seen with others. So what is a witness of Jesus? Someone who has seen the power of Jesus at work in their lives and shares that with others. We witness with our words, telling the world about the gospel that Milt prayed about, that we sang about, the truth of Jesus, and how he rescued us from our sin by his life and death and resurrection. And when we share the gospel, that is being a witness of Jesus. But we also witness of Jesus by how we live. New lives, resurrected lives, not building our own kingdoms, but building his. And it's shown in living like Jesus by loving God and loving others in holiness the way he showed us. Let me give you some examples of lives witnessing of Jesus. How do we treat others? Are we always thinking about ourselves or considering others above ourselves? Do we speak words of grace and truth and compassion or harshness and hate and condemnation from prideful hearts? Do we pursue the same treasures of this world? Comfort, esteem, influence, recognition, more and better stuff. Or do we witness to the reality of Jesus by trading the treasures of this world for the treasures of heaven? And we could go on. But how we live, along with the words we use, is our witness that the story of Jesus is the story. And it has revolutionized our lives. And that's it. That's your purpose. That's mine. You're welcome. You can go to sleep tonight. (laughs) To be a witness in our home, in our office, in our classroom, in our neighborhood, in our online interactions, in every square inch to the ends of the earth to tell the world the truth about Jesus. And even when we fall short of that purpose, even the grace of Jesus that he shows us is a witness to his greatness. And sometimes witnessing to the truth of Jesus is following him to teach fifth grade. The first ingredient in our recipe for revolution is the proof of the story. The second ingredient, the purpose of our lives in that story. And the next ingredient is the power in us to be able to live out that purpose, the Holy Spirit. What's great is that Jesus just doesn't give us our purpose, give us our marching orders to be witnesses without giving us the most incredible gift to accomplish it. So let's read again in Acts 1.8. It says this, But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So back in verse 5, when Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and here in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus was promising the most incredible transformational gift we could possibly have. That to accomplish the purposes our lives were meant for, God would not simply give us Jesus or God with us, but we would have God in us the Holy Spirit. And he comes with power. That word power there in verse 8 is the Greek dynamis, where we get the word dynamite. This explosive power in us is the very power of God in us. And we don't have time to unpack all that the Holy Spirit's power brings to our lives, and Pastor Milt will talk more about that next week. But what I simply want to say is this, that we will see throughout the story in Acts together the power and wonder and explosiveness of God's Holy Spirit moving in and among his people to do extraordinary things. Sometimes that extraordinary dynamis power is seen in big, supernatural expressions of power. People speaking in languages that they never knew, the dead being raised, the sick healed, prison chains broken, visions from heaven, lots of grand miracles of the Spirit's power at work. But we're going to see the Spirit's power work in other ways, bringing people to confess and trust and believe in the name of Jesus people selling and sharing their possessions with one another, meeting regularly to pray and to study and to learn God's word together, building communities of care, compassion, and holiness, and joyfully turning and repenting of sin. The dynamis, the power of God's Holy Spirit in us turns us into powerful witnesses bold in speaking the truth of Jesus to those in our lives, powerful in seeking God's kingdom above our own and how we live lives of holiness and humility, God's purpose for us to be his witnesses, fueled by God's power in us, the Holy Spirit. And we'll dive deeper and deeper into this power together as we study through Acts. But the ingredients so far, the proof of the story, the purpose of our lives, the power in us, but that's not it. We need to add the place of Jesus. Luke mentions in verse 2 that after the risen Jesus appeared to many, he was taken up, and then unpacks what that is in verse 9. Just after giving the disciples their new purpose and power, it says this, and when he, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. So this is referred to as the ascension. The physical, bodily rising of Jesus up into the clouds and out of the sight of the onlooking disciples. So, where did he go? What is he doing? And how does this help ignite the revolution that changed the world? Well, first, where did Jesus go? Well, as it says here, Jesus ascended up to heaven, that in his body, to be at the right hand of God, 
So Jesus told his disciples many times before his death and even after his resurrection that he would go back to the Father. And the other writers of the New Testament wanted us to be absolutely clear where the ascended Jesus is right now. And a couple examples. The author of Hebrews says this, Church, us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Paul not only wanted us to tell us where he is, but what he's doing there. Ephesians 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Where is the risen Jesus now in his resurrected body? At the right hand of God in heaven. What is he doing? Ruling and reigning over all things in complete authority over everything. And why is this important? (laughs) Because friends, hear this we will always find our peace, our security, our deepest rest in what we believe has the power over our lives. If we think money has the greatest power to give us peace and security, our peace and security will be tied up and down to our bank accounts. If we think people's opinions of us are what give us peace and security, we'll constantly be up and down fearing people's opinions. We are always going to find our true rest, security, joy, and peace, and whatever we believe is in power over our lives. And so when we stop and realize that Jesus alone, at the right hand of the throne of heaven, holds all the power, Jesus becomes our peace. Jesus becomes our security. Jesus becomes our joy, and that peace, security, and joy can never be lost. Because Jesus can never be lost. It's a peace that can sing in the storm, and a confidence to face any giant because of the place of our loving King Jesus over all things. Okay, let's take a breather. We've been through a lot already. We're about a third of the way through. No, I'm just kidding. I hope you see here that Luke is very intentional in opening up his book by telling Theophilus what all came together to spark this world-changing revolution. Proof of the true story, our purpose in that story, the Spirit's power in us, and the place of Jesus over us. But there's one final ingredient that we see in our story today that sends the revolution going. And it's what I call the punch out of paralysis. (laughs) So let's go back to verse 9. It says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the disciples who had seen the risen Jesus, and they knew the story was true. They had been given their new purpose, witnesses, and the promise of the power to come, the Spirit. Jesus had just ascended before them, and what did they do? Well, they sat there, like me, at the end of a Christopher Nolan movie, slack-jawed and paralyzed, saying, that was awesome, but what just happened? (laughs) And two angels come up to them and say, hey guys, what are you doing? (laughs) Quit staring. There's work to be done and not much time to do it. So friends, we live in the in-between. There was literally a day 2,000 years ago when Jesus ascended. It's a historical date. And those uh, angels are saying there's a specific day coming when he will return. And the opportunity to live out our purpose, to witness to Jesus, to make our mark on eternity, will be done. We are in the in-between of that day then and the day that's coming. And it's like we're in a chapter of a book. And page one was the ascension. And the last page is when Jesus returns. And every day we turn a page closer to the end. And we need to wake up. I need to wake up. Get busy. Stop wasting our lives. Because the days are specific, finite, coming to an end in our opportunity to live as witnesses that we were made to do. So maybe this picture will help some. So, as I've mentioned all the time, I've got kids at home. (laughs) We have uh, two almost seven-year-olds and a five-year-old at our house. But since bringing them home from the hospital, I'm constantly aware of the countdown clock that hovers above them. There are a finite number of days I have with my kiddos. They're going to grow up and move out. There is literally a fixed number of days Aaron and I have with them at home. I just don't know what that number is. But when I live with that mindset, what does it make me do? Live every day with purpose and urgency with them. It reprioritizes my day. It makes me get down on the floor and play when I'm tired. It makes me put down the phone And pick up the crayon. When I realize that I'm living with them in a finite in-between of bringing them home and sending them off, it revolutionizes every day with a new purpose and new urgency. And this is why the psalmist, I think, prays to God and says this, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom. Knowing how to live. And friends, it's really important to think that way when it comes to your children. But it's infinitely more important to think that way with our very lives. That we're living in the in-between of Jesus' story. That every day that passes is a a page closer to the end of that chapter. That every day 
matters for eternity because we can and should do things of eternal value. And what are those things? Witnessing with our lives about the reality of Jesus. Why are we staring into heaven? Why are we staring up at the the stage, the pastor, the screen, and then going off and living like everyone else? Why are we paralyzed, staring at our phone screens or the stock ticket or the television or whatever as each day moves past us? Friends, I'm speaking to myself. We need to wake up, snap out of it. The story is true. Jesus is reigning. The power is in you. The purpose is clear. So let's break out of our paralysis and live the life Jesus died to give us. And when we do, we join the revolution that has changed the world. And one last point. If you think I'm making all this up, (laughs) let's take a glimpse really quick just at the next chapter of Acts. So the Spirit has come. The disciples are miraculously and publicly and boldly speaking about Jesus in foreign languages that they've never known. And crowds are forming to see what in the world is going on. And what does Peter tell the watching crowds is the reason for what's happening. Verses 32 and 33. Peter says this to the crowds. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Do you see what Peter is saying here? The recipe for revolution, all right there. Jesus is raised. The story is true. We are all witnesses. That is our purpose. We have received the Spirit. That is our power. And Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. That is our courage. He tells them, that's why you see what you see. Do you see what Luke was trying to show us? How all these ingredients come together. And when believed, they ignite a revolution. And when we believe the true story of Jesus, his death for our sin and his victorious resurrection for our forgiveness, his resurrection gives us a new purpose. To point, all, to point to all Jesus is with all that we are as his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that we're not left alone to do it in our own strength, but God promises to give us himself, his Holy Spirit, to work in and through us in a new power that we could never imagine. And all the while, we know our risen king reigns over all things from his throne in heaven, and so we have nothing to fear, not even death. And when we believe all those ingredients, we break out of the paralysis of distracted living and live with an urgency and purpose as we await our returning king. So for the last 20 years, I've got to witness my spiritual mentor, Mike, that I mentioned, and his wife, Bev, live out this revolution. Trusting God step by step, spending their lives as a witness to Jesus, Their story includes going from public school to getting a seminary degree to following God to a church in Colorado, and it's now uh, they're helping their son-in-law plant a church in Washington State. Steps of faith into the unknown, surrendered to a God they know is worth it. Living the life that is truly life, that the story is true, Jesus reigns, the power of God is in us, and the purpose is clear.
So friends, we're going to walk together through the rest of the Acts story. Not this morning. (laughs) But this is just the first 11 verses. But friends, family, I'll be honest. Expect it to get challenging. Expect it to call us out of where we are. To get uncomfortable. To expect revolution in our own lives. But also... Expect that that change is because God opens our eyes to see the big, true, beautiful picture of the risen, reigning Jesus. Do you believe? What story are you living in? Have you been revolutionized by his grace? It's so important that we remember every time we gather the story that we're in and our purpose that Jesus gives us an ordinance to make sure we remember. And it's called communion. And communion is a time for believers. When you gather together and we we break the bread and we take the cup, and we remember the story that though we are sinners, God loved us. That though we were undeserving of salvation, Jesus came to rescue us. And the very greatest act of love that the world has ever known is that the sinless Jesus became our sin on the cross, his body broken, his blood spilled, that he died, taking the judgment for our sin that he deserved, but he rose again. And with his new life, not only is our victory and salvation secure, but our purpose, our power, our identity is raised with him. So when we take communion together, we remember Jesus and we remember the story that we're in. And as we'll see when we take the elements together, the apostle Paul tells us we do it in the in-between, until he comes back. So what we're going to do is we're going to play some music. And you can see the tables around side. Those serving communion want to go to the tables. I want you to spend a few moments here with God. Maybe you've never heard the gospel. Maybe you've never heard the story that though you were dead and guilty in your sin, Jesus came and lived the life you should have lived of sinless perfection and took the cross of your sin in your place so that he would become your sin and he would give you his perfect record of righteousness. And he proved that the story was true, as we've said today, by not only dying but rising again. And all you have to do is believe, trust, not yourself but Jesus. And maybe this is the first day you've entered into the true story. But for many of us, communion is a reminder of the story that we believe, that it's so easy to forget we get so easily distracted and paralyzed. So in this time, take a few moments and ask God's Spirit to speak to you the truth about who He is and who you are and what He's called you to be. And when you're ready, you can make your way to one of the tables, grab the elements, come back to your seat. You can go ahead and start opening them up. And after everybody comes back, we'll take the elements together. So when you're ready, you may dismiss yourself to the table, grab the elements, and return. So spend some time with the Lord.